Chapter 5, Part 2 of the Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kurt Troutwine. The Boy Scouts Book of Campfire Stories, Chapter 5 The Weight of Obligation, Part 2 by Rex Beach. As time passed, the men spoke less frequently to each other. Grant Josh as mate roughly, once or twice, masking beneath an assumption of jocularity his own vague irritation at the change that had come over them. It was as if he had probed in an open wound with clumsy fingers. Cantwell had by this time assumed most of those petty camp tasks which provoke tired trailers, those humdrum duties which are so trying to exhausted nerves, and of course they wore upon him as they wear upon every man. But once he had taken them over, he began to resent Grant's easy relinquishment. It rankled him to realize how willingly the other allowed him to do the cooking, the dishwashing, the fire-building, the bed-making. Little monotonies of this kind form the hardest part of winter travel. They are the rocks upon which friendships founder and partnerships are wrecked. Out on the trail, nature equalizes the work to a great extent, and no man can shirk unduly. But in camp, inside the cramped confines of a tent pitched on bows laid over the snow it is very different there one must busy himself while the other rests and keeps his legs out of the way if possible one man sits on the bedding at the rear of the shelter and shivers while the other squats over a tantalizing fire of green wood blistering his face and parboiling his limbs inside of his sweaty clothing dishes must be passed food divided and it is poor food poorly prepared at best Sometimes men criticize and voice longings for better grub and better cooking. Remarks of this kind have been known to result in tragedies, bitter words and flaming curses, then perhaps wild actions, memories of which the later years can never erase. It is but one prank of the wilderness, one grim manifestation of its silent forces. Had Grant been unable to do his part, Cantwell would have willingly accepted the added burden. But Mort was able. He was nimble and handy. He was the better cook of the two. In fact, he was the better man in every way, or so he believed. Kitwell sneered at the last thought, and the memory of his debt was like bitter medicine. His resentment, in reality nothing more than a phase of insanity begot of isolation and silence, could not help but communicate itself to his companion, and there resulted a mutual antagonism, which grew into a dislike then festered into something more, something strange, reasonless, yet terribly vivid and amazingly potent for evil. Neither man ever mentioned it. Their tongues were clenched between their teeth, and they held themselves in check with harsh hands, but it was constantly in their minds, nevertheless. No man who has not suffered the manifold irritations of such an intimate association can appreciate the gnawing canker of animosity like this. It was dangerous because there was no relief from it. The two were bound together as by jives. They shared each other's every action and every plan. They trod in each other's tracks, slept in the same bed, ate from the same plate. They were like prisoners, ironed to the same staple. Each fought the obsession in his own way. But it is hard to fight the impalpable, hence their sick fancies grew in spite of themselves. Their minds needed food to prey upon but found none. Each began to criticize the other silently, to sneer at his weaknesses, 
to meditate derisively upon his peculiarities after a time they no longer resisted the advances of these poisonous thoughts but welcomed it on more than one occasion the embers of their wrath were upon the point of bursting into flame but each realized the first ill-considered word would serve to slip the leash from those demons that were straining to go free and so managed to restrain himself the crisis came one crisp morning when a dog team whirled around the bend in the river and a white man hailed them he was the mail carrier on his way out from nome and he brought news of the inside where are you boys bound for he inquired when the greetings were over and the gossip of the trail had passed we're going to stony river strike grant told him stony river up the kuskokwim yes the mailman laughed can you beat that ain't you heard about stony river no why it's a fake no such place there was a silence the partners avoided each other's eyes macdonald the fellow that started it is on his way to dawson there's a gang after him too and if he's caught it'll go hard with him he wrote the letters to himself and spread the news to raise the grub stake he cleaned up big before they got to him he peddled his tips for real money yes grant spoke quietly johnny bought one that's what brought us from seattle we went out on the last boat and figured we'd come in from this side before the breakup. so fake gee you fellas bit good the mail carrier shook his head well you'd better get going now you'll get to know him before the season opens better take dogfish from bethel it's four bits a pound on the yukon sorry i didn't hit your camp last night we'd had a visit tell the gang that you saw me he shook hands ceremoniously yelled at his panting dogs and went swiftly on his way waving a mitten on high as he vanished around the next bend the partners watched him go then grant turned to johnny and repeated fake macdonald stung you cantwell's face went as white as the snow behind him his eyes blazed why did you tell him i bit he demanded harshly huh didn't you bite two thousand miles afoot three months of hades for nothing that's biting some well the speaker's face was convulsed and grants flamed with an answering anger they glared at each other for a moment don't blame me you fell for it too i mort checked his rushing words yes you now what are you going to do about it welsh i'm going through to nome the sight of his partner's rage had set mort into shaking with a furious desire to fly at his throat but fortunately he retained a spark of sanity then shut up and quit chewing the rag you talk too much mort's eyes were bloodshot they fell upon the carbine under the sled lashings and lingered there then wavered he opened his lips reconsidered spoke softly to the team then lifted the heavy dog whip and smote the malamutes with all his strength the men resumed their journey without further words but each was cursing inwardly so i talk too much grant thought the accusation struck in his mind and he determined to speak no more he blames me cantwell reflected bitterly i'm in the wrong again and he couldn't keep his mouth shut a fine partner he is all day they plodded on neither trusting himself to speak they ate their evening meal like mutes they avoided each other's eyes even the guide noticed the change and looked on curiously there were two robes and these the partners shared nightly but their hatred had grown so during the past few hours that the thought of lying side by side limb to limb 
was distasteful, yet neither dared suggest a division of the bedding, for that would have brought further words and resulted in the crash which they longed for but feared. They stripped off their furs, and lay down beside each other with the same repugnance they would have felt had there been a serpent in the couch. This unending malevolent silence became terrible. The strain of it increased, for each man now had something definite to cherish in the words and the looks that had passed. They divided the camp work with scrupulous nicety. Each man waited upon himself and asked no favors. The knowledge of his debt forever chafed Cantwell. Grant resented his companion's lack of gratitude. Of course, they spoke occasionally. It was beyond human endurance to remain entirely dumb. But they conversed in monosyllables, about trivial things, and their voices were throaty, as if the effort choked them. Meanwhile, they continued to glow inwardly at the white heat. Cantwell no longer felt a desire merely to match his strength against Grant's. The estrangement had become too wide for that. A physical victory would have been flat and tasteless. He craved some deeper satisfaction. He began to think of the axe. Just how or when or why, he never knew. It was a thin-bladed, polished thing of frosty steel, and the more he thought of it, the stronger grew his impulse to rid himself once and for all of that presence which exasperated him. It would be very easy, he reasoned, a sudden blow with the weight of his shoulders behind it. He fancied he could feel the bit sink into Grant's flesh, cleaving bone and cartilages in its course, a slanting downward stroke, aimed at the neck where it joined the body, and he would be forever satisfied. It would be ridiculously simple. He practiced in the gloom of the evening as he felled spruce trees for firewood. He guarded the axe religiously. It became a living thing which urged him on to violence. He saw it standing by the tent fly when he closed his eyes to sleep. He dreamed of it. He sought it out with his eyes when he first awoke. He slid it loosely under the sled lashings every morning, thinking that its use could not long be delayed. As for Grant, the carbine dwelt forever in his mind, and his fingers itched for it. He secretly slipped a cartridge into the chamber, and when an occasional ptarmigan offered itself for a target, he saw the white spot on the breast of Johnny's reindeer parka dancing ahead of the lyman bead. The solitude had done its work. The North had played its grim comedy to the final curtain, making sport of men's affections and turning love to rankling hate. But into the mind of each man crept a certain craftiness. Each longed to strike, but feared to face the consequences. It was lonesome, here among the white hills and deathly silences. Yet they reflected that it would be still more lonesome if they were left to keep step with nothing more substantial than a memory. They determined, therefore, to wait until civilization was near, meanwhile rehearsing the moment they knew was inevitable. Over and over in their thoughts each of them enacted the scene, ending it always with a picture of a prostrate man in a patch of trampled snow which grew crimson as the other gloated. They paused at Bethel Mission long enough to load with dried salmon, then made the ninety-mile portage over lake and tundra to the Yukon. There they got their first touch of the inside world. They camped in a barabora where a white man had slept a few nights before, and heard their own language spoken by native tongues. The time was growing short now, and they purposely dismissed their guide, knowing that the trail was plain from there on. When they hitched up on the next morning, Cantwell placed the axe, bit down, between the tarpaulin and the sled rail, leaving the helve projecting where his hand could reach it. 
Grant thrust the barrel of the rifle beneath the lashing, with the butt close by the handlebars, and it was loaded. A mile from the village they were overtaken by an Indian and his squaw, traveling light behind hungry dogs. The natives attached themselves to the white men, and hung stubbornly to their heels, taking advantage of their tracks. When night came they camped alongside, in hope of food. They announced they were bound for St. Michael's, and in spite of every effort to shake them off they remained close behind the partners until that point was reached. At St. Michael's there were white men, practically the first Johnny and Mort had encountered since landing at Katmai, and for a day, at least, they were sane. But there were still three hundred miles to be traveled, three hundred miles of solitude and haunting thoughts. Just as they were about to start, Cantwell came up on Grant and the A.C. agent, and heard his name pronounced, also the word Katmai. He noted that Mort fell silent on his approach, and instantly his anger blazed afresh. He decided that the latter had been telling the story of their experience on the pass and boasting of his service. So much better, he thought, in a blind rage. That which he planned doing would appear all the more like an accident, for who would dream that a man could kill the person to whom he owed his life? That night he waited for a chance. They were camped in a dismal hut on a windswept shore. They were alone, but Grant was waiting also, it seemed. They lay down beside each other ostensibly to sleep. Their limbs touched, the warmth of their bodies intermingled, but they did not close their eyes. They were up and away early, with Nome drawing rapidly nearer. They had skirted an ocean, foot by foot. Bering Sea lay behind them now, and its northern shore swung westward to their goal. For two months they had lived in silent animosity, feeding on bitter food while their elbows rubbed. Noon found them floundering through one of those unheralded storms which make coast travel so hazardous. The morning had turned off gray. The sky was of a leaden hue which blended perfectly with the snow underfoot. There was no horizon. It was impossible to see more than a few yards in any direction. The trail soon became obliterated, and their eyes began to play tricks. For all they could distinguish, they might have been suspended in space. They seemed to be treading the measures of an old endless dance in the center of a whirling cloud. Of course it was cold, for the wind off the open sea was damp, but they were not men to turn back. They soon discovered that their difficulty lay not in facing the storm, but in holding to the trail. That narrow two-foot causeway, packed by a winter's travel and frozen into a ribbon of ice by a winter's frost, afforded their only avenue of progress. For the moment they left it, the sled plowed into the loose snow, well nigh disappearing and bringing the dogs to a standstill. It was the duty of the driver, in such case, to wallow forward, right the load if necessary, and lift it back into place. These mishaps were forever occurring, for it was impossible to distinguish the trail beneath its soft covering. However, if the driver's task was hard, it was no more trying than that of the man ahead who was compelled to feel out and explore the ridge of hardened snow and ice with his feet, after the fashion of a man walking the plank in the dark. Frequently he lunged into the drifts with one foot, or both. His glazed mucklucked soles slid about, causing him to bestride the invisible hogback, or again his legs crossed awkwardly, throwing him off his balance. At times he wandered away from the path entirely and had to search it out again. These exertions were very wearing, and they were dangerous also for joints are easily dislocated, muscles twisted, and tendons strained. Hour after hour the march continued, unrelieved by any change, unbroken by any speck or spot of color. 
The nerves of their eyes, wearied by constant nearsighted peering at the snow, began to jump so that vision became untrustworthy. Both travelers appreciated the necessity of clinging to the trail, for once they lost it, they knew they might wander about indefinitely until they chanced to regain it or found their way to the shore, while always to seaward was their menace of open water, of open air holes, or cracks which might gape beneath their feet like jaws. Immersion in this temperature, no matter how brief, meant death. The monotony of progress through this unreal, leaden world became almost unbearable. The repeated strainings and twistings they suffered walking through the slippery ridge reduced the men to weariness. Their legs grew clumsy and their feet uncertain. Had they found a camping place, they would have stopped. But they dared not forsake the thin thread that linked them with safety to go and look for one, not knowing where the shore lay. In storms of this kind, men had lain in their sleeping bags for days within a stone's throw of a roadhouse or village. Bodies have been found within a hundred yards of shelter after blizzards have abated. Cantwell and Grant had no choice, therefore, except to bore into the welter of drifting flakes. It was late in the afternoon when the latter met with an accident. Johnny, who had taken a spell at the rear, heard him cry out, saw him stagger, struggle to hold his footing, then sink into the snow. The dogs paused instantly, lay down, and began to strip the ice pellets from between their toes. Cantwell spoke harshly, leaning upon the handlebars. Well, what's the idea? It was the longest sentence of the day. I've hurt myself. Mort's voice was thin and strange. He raised himself to a sitting posture. He reached beneath his parka, then lay back weakly. He writhed. His face was twisted with pain. He continued to lie there, doubled into a knot of suffering. A groan was wrenched from between his teeth. Hurt? How? Johnny inquired, dully. It seemed very ridiculous to see that strong man kicking around in the snow. I've ripped something loose here. Mort's palms were pressed in upon his groin. His fingers were clutching something. Ruptured, I guess. He tried again to rise, but sank back. His cap had fallen off, and his forehead glistened with sweat. Cantwell went forward and lifted him. It was the first time in many days that their hands had touched, and the sensation affected him strangely. He struggled to repress a devilish mirth at the thought that Grant had played out. It amounted to that, and nothing less. The trail had delivered him into his enemy's hands. His hour had struck. Johnny determined to square the debt now, once and for all, and wipe his own mind clean of that poison which corroded it. His muscles were strong, his brain clear. He had never felt his strength so irresistible as at this moment, while Mort, for all his boasted superiority, was nothing but a nerveless thing hanging limp against his breast. Providence had arranged it all. The younger man was impelled to give a raucous voice to his glee, and yet his helpless burden exerted an odd effect upon him. He deposited his foe upon the sled and stared at the face he had not met for many days. He saw how white it was, how wet and cold, how weak and dazed. Then, as he looked, he cursed inwardly, for the triumph of his moment was spoiled. The axe was there. Its polished bit showed like a piece of ice. Its helve protruded handily. But there was no need of it now. His fingers were all the weapons Johnny needed. They were more than sufficient, in fact, for Mort was like a child. Cantwell was a strong man, and although the North had coarsened him, yet underneath the surface was a chivalrous regard for all things weak. In this, the trail madness had not affected. He had longed for this instant, but now that it had come he felt no enjoyment. 
since he could not harm a sick man and waged no war on cripples. Perhaps, when Mort had rested, they could settle their quarrel. This was as good a place as any. The storm hid them. They would leave no traces. There would be no interruption. But Mort did not rest. He could not walk. Movement brought excruciating pain. Finally, Cantwell heard himself saying, Better wrap up and lie still for a while. I'll get the dogs underway. His words amazed him dully. They were not at all what he had intended to say. The injured man demurred. But the other insisted gruffly, then brought him his mittens and cap, slapping the snow out of them before rousing the team to motion. The load was very heavy now. The dogs had no footprints to guide them, and it required all of Cantwell's efforts to prevent capsizing. Night approached swiftly. The whirling snow particles continued to flow past upon the wind, shrouding the earth in an impenetrable pall. The journey soon became a terrible ordeal, a slow, halting progress that led nowhere and was accomplished at the cost of tremendous exertion. Time after time Johnny broke trail, then returned and urged the huskies forward to the end of his tracks. When he lost the path he sought it out, laboriously hoisted the sledge back into place and coaxed his four-footed helpers to renewed effort. He was drenched with perspiration. His inner garments were steaming, his outer garments were frozen into a coat of armor. When he paused, he chilled rapidly. His vision was untrustworthy, also, and he felt snow-blindness coming on. Grant begged him more than once to unroll the bedding and prepare to sleep out the storm. He even urged Johnny to leave him and make a dash for his own safety, but at this the younger man cursed and told him to hold his tongue. Knight found the lone driver slipping, plunging, lurching ahead of the dogs, or shoving at the handlebars and shouting at the dogs. Finally, during a pause for rest, he heard a sound which roused him. Out of a gloom to the right came the faint complaining howl of a malamute. It was answered by his own dogs, and the next moment they had caught a scent which swerved them shoreward and led them scrambling through the drifts. Two hundred yards and a steep bank loomed above, up and over which they rushed, with Cantwell yelling encouragement. Then a light showed, and they were in the lee of a low-roofed hut. A sick native huddled over a Yukon stove made them welcome to his mean abode, explaining that his wife and son had gone to Unalakleek for supplies. Johnny carried his partner to the one unoccupied bunk and stripped his clothes from him. With his own hands, he rubbed the warmth back into Mortimer's limbs then swiftly prepared hot food, and, holding him in the hollow of his aching arm, fed him, a little at a time. He was like to drop from exhaustion, but he made no complaint. With one folded robe, he made the hard boards comfortable, then spread the other as a covering. For himself, he sat beside the fire and fought his weariness. When he dozed off and the cold awakened him, he renewed the fire. He heated beef tea and, rousing Mort, fed it to him with a teaspoon. All night long, at intervals, he tended to the sick man, and Grant's eyes followed him with an expression that brought a fierce pain to Cantwell's throat. You're mighty good after the rotten way I acted, the former whispered once, and Johnny's big hand trembled so that he spilled the broth. His voice was low and tender as he inquired, Are you resting easier now? The other nodded. Maybe you're not hurt badly, after all. God, that'd be awful. Cantwell choked, turned away, and, raising his arms against the log wall, buried his face in them. The morning broke clear. Grant was sleeping. As Johnny stiffly mounted the creek bank with a bucket of water, he heard a jingle of sleigh bells and saw a sled with two white men swing in toward the cabin. Hello! 
He called, and then he heard his own name pronounced. Johnny Cantwell, by all that's holy. The next moment he was shaking hands vigorously with two old friends from Nome. Martin and me were bound for St. Mike's, one of them explained. Where the deuce did you come from, Johnny? The outside. Started for Stony River, but Stony River. The newcomers began to laugh loudly, and Cantwell joined them. It was the first time he had laughed for weeks. He realized the fact with a start, then recollected also his sleeping partner, and said, Shh, Mort's inside asleep. During the night, everything had changed for Johnny Cantwell. His mental attitude, his hatred, his whole reasonless insanity. Everything was different now. Even his debt was cancelled, the weight of obligation was removed, and his diseased fancies were completely cured. Yes, Stony River, he repeated, grinning broadly. I bet. Martin burst forth gleefully. They caught MacDonald at Holy Cross and ran him out on a limb. He'll never start another stampede. Old man Baker gun-branded him. What's the matter with Mort? inquired the second traveler. He's resting up. Yesterday during the storm he... Johnny was up on the point of saying played out, but changed it to had an accident. We thought it was serious, but a few days rest he'll be bringing around all right. He saved me at Katmai coming in. I petered out and threw up my tail, but he got me through. Come inside and tell him the news. Sure thing. Well, well, Martin said. So you and Mort are still partners, eh? Still partners? Johnny took up the pail of water. Well, rather, we'll always be partners. His voice was young and full of hearty as he continued. Why, Mort's the best fellow in the world. I'd lay down my life for him. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Kurt Troutwine